Hello, welcome back, dandies. Today we have on a special guest. His name is Benjamin Studebaker. Uh, Benjamin is uh, recently published a book, The Chronic Crisis of American Democracy, subtitle The Way is Shut. However, that is not the only uh, work that Benjamin has done. He's a uh, writer for the Huffington Post and Current Affairs in the in the past. He's also a podcast host of a really interesting podcast, Political Theory 101 and The Lack. Um, so, uh, yeah, just a lot of uh, really high quality political thought and um, as well as being a Cambridge graduate. Uh, I think I forget where else you went, but yeah. Uh, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and sort of the the premise of the book that you recently published uh, so that we could get a flavor and uh, get into some more pointed conversation. Yeah, well, I'm originally from Indiana. I went to a public high school in Indiana. And uh, from there, I went to the University of Warwick in the UK for undergrad. I did master's at University of Chicago and then the PhD at Cambridge. This book is an outgrowth of just years of frustration with the American political system and uh, years of watching different things be tried and uh, people get excited about or scared of different possibilities and seeing none of them really come to pass. It's a meditation on why the system is A, so dysfunctional, but also B, so stable, so difficult to move past, get rid of, meaningfully change, reform, uh, or oppose. The I think the contradiction that I'm really wrestling with in this book is that on the one hand, this system really immiserates people in a quite serious way. And at the same time, that does not make it possible for it to be transcended or changed very easily. It's very, very tanky and durable, but at the same time, it really is horrific. And there are theorists who emphasize the tanky, durable quality, but will then go, ah, see, this means it's great. And there are theorists who will emphasize the horror and they'll go, therefore, it must surely collapse and give way to something else. But if we put both of those ideas together, then we have a really difficult and upsetting problem. And that's the problem that this book is about. Yeah. So uh, like you, I I also have a very, um, uh, I guess, despairing view of the possibilities for American politics. Of course, I'm an anarchist, so that's, you know, kind of comes with the territory, but I'm not necessarily as knee-jerk about it as a lot of anarchists are. I've I've thought about some of the issues that you talk about in the book and really agree with much of the, the content there. So uh, we got a lot to talk about. We'll see what you have time for today, but... um. One thing that I want to make sure that people understand is sort of the genre or the uh, the domain of knowledge that you're writing in, which would be basically ideas of state legitimacy. And if you could briefly just like tell people what that is and uh, so they have that context. Yeah. So legitimacy is to do with whether people find the state uh, and it's political order acceptable, whether they're willing to tolerate it, whether they're willing to put up with it. And insofar as they resent the things the state does, the more they resent the things the state does, the less willing they are to tolerate it or accept it. Now, historically, 
legitimacy is often treated as a binary coin. Either you have it or you don't have it. Either people put up with the state's order or they don't, and there's some kind of crisis where the state collapses. I complicate this a little bit in my academic work by suggesting that legitimacy is, is scalar and that there are maybe four different kind of distinct levels of it. So you can imagine a situation where nobody resents anything the state does. You can imagine a situation where people resent some of the things the state is doing, but not the procedures through which it makes those decisions. So they don't like particular people who are elected or particular policies or laws, but they sign up to the electoral system, the way in which the branches of government function, the way the constitution is structured, that stuff they're still content with. Uh, Then a level below that, you've got people who don't like the procedures, think they need to be meaningfully changed, but are still committed to the regime type, to representative democracy in the abstract. And then beneath that, you would have, say, straightforward opposition to representative democracy and support for revolutionary alternative systems. So the thing that I I do is I introduce this idea that you can get stuck at that third level. So you're in a level where people don't like the procedures, don't think they work, but are committed to democracy as a system type. They're not able to come up with other system types they like. So they can't sink all the way down into the revolutionary mood where they would then stage some kind of insurrection. There's no other system that they believe in. Or if there is a system they believe in, they can't see any meaningful path or viable path to that system from where we are. And they don't want to die. They're scared of what happens if they try to bring it about and they think their chances are very low. So in that setting, they will try to find procedural reforms that they can use to purify the system and make it work a little better. And they'll dress those procedural reforms up as if they were really big and radical and really capable of delivering a lot of change. Of course, if the legitimacy crisis is driven by a really intractable problem, then those procedural reforms will not be sufficient to actually unlock the change. And it becomes a little bit of a hope treadmill as people get psyched up about various procedural reforms that don't, in fact, give the state the capacity to act in the ways that they are hoping uh, it will have the capacity to act. Now, coming at it from, say, a different point of view, you might argue that what is legitimacy is ideology, that these are explanations for state power, explanations for a power system that are themselves ways of oppressing people. And there's a big debate in the literature about whether there is a meaningful difference between a, a valid legitimation story and just an ideological ploy. I think it's important to bear in mind that from different points of view, anything which claims to be legitimacy can appear as ideology. And anything that appears as ideology could, for somebody else, actually perform a legitimating function. So when we're talking about legitimacy, we're talking about ideology, but from a different point of view, that point of view being the point of view of the system that is trying to sustain itself. And the reason I do that, the reason I interrogate that, is if we sometimes adopt that other point of view, I think we learn a lot about how states work and how states are able to maintain themselves in the face of all the terrible things that they do. They do a lot of really awful things, but it doesn't mean that they collapse. It doesn't mean everybody rebels. And if you could think of it from that point of view, from the legitimation point of view, as opposed to just the ideological point of view, that mechanism becomes clearer and easier to understand. And then if you do then return to the critical perspective, you are going to have more success with that if you understand ideology from the legitimation standpoint. Yeah. And this, so in your book, you're focusing on America, but on your uh, political philosophy 101 podcast, or is that the title of it? Political Uh, theory 101. 101. Yeah. Yeah. You, you really get into 
a lot of the philosophical history of all sorts of different states and um, their their legitimacies and crises of legitimacy. And I want to recommend that as well, because I've been listening to that and I thought it's really good um, and important. And it's a good uh, um, background to what you're writing here. Um, so, yeah, so you mentioned that in America right now, it appear, apparently we're stuck in this third category, which is, I think, minimal legitimacy is what. Yeah, uh, the yeah, minimal, but not liminal. Yeah. OK. Um, and uh, so we'll we'll get into why that is. But one thing I noticed, like right away in your book, is you have a really uh, good focus on the way that language and I guess semiotics or whatever function in this kind of crisis. And um, you talk about McGovernization, which I want to I want to specifically have you talk about at the beginning. But then you go on to talk about liberty and equality and representation and the term democracy as well. And just the way that these these words are. Um, uh, employed by the powerful, the oligarchs, and the uh, uh, whoever else, um, is probably, you know, I would say one of the strongest themes running throughout your book. So, yeah, let's start. Like, if you could talk about the this McGovernization idea, and then uh, I want to just, you know, talk about some of the other language issues and uh, go from there. Yeah, so I employ some class categories in the book. I break up classes into the traditional workers who work for a wage, derive their income from a wage, uh, don't go to college. The professionals who do go to college but still derive the bulk of their income from salary or wage. And then the employers who own businesses and derive most of their income from their businesses or from rents or from investments. Now, within the professionals, I make a distinction between the rump professionals and the fallen professionals. So the rump professionals go to college and are able to accomplish what they intended when they went to college. If they go for uh, to try to become a major player in the academy, if they go to become a doctor or a lawyer or a business executive or an engineer, they're successful ultimately in doing that. They end up with the kind of income and lifestyle that they expected to have. The fallen professionals go to college and don't get all of that. They end up with a standard of living that's not substantively better than traditional workers who don't go to college, but they've been to college. Since they don't have a meaningful advantage in terms of standard of living, the way they differentiate themselves from traditional workers is through language and through cultural norms and signifiers. So they will use a lot of terminology that is inaccessible to people who haven't gone to college as a way of reminding themselves that they went and that they have this cultural capital, that they've had this experience, because it's the last meaningful advantage from going to college that still belongs to them. The effect of this is that when rump professionals are playing leading roles in political movements, they tend to use a lot of language which boxes traditional workers out of those movements, alienates them, makes those workers uncomfortable. And while in theory, a lot of rump professionals want to include workers in their movements, in practice, they find that the cost of doing that culturally, uh, in terms of, of 
how the discussions will be carried out within the organization in terms of the types of terms people will use, the types of sentiments they express. It's ultimately a cost they're not usually willing to bear. And in most organizational settings, people who go to college come off as better educated and more with it. And so they tend to be able to outfox people who haven't gone to college in competitions for influence within organizations. So what I call McGovernization, which I named for the campaign of George McGovern, is this tendency for organizations which include both traditional workers and professionals to cater more and more to professionals over time, increasingly to the exclusion of workers. Workers become more and more marginalized and professional voices get more and more attention. And in organizations where this is happening, the focus will be on other things apart from this college educated versus not distinction. The focus will instead be on whether the voices are racially balanced, whether they're balanced in terms of gender or in terms of sexuality, or even in terms of income. But all of this will paper over the college versus non-college distinction. And in the bulk of left-wing organizations operating today of any scale, there is an overwhelming professional class bias that uh, some people are aware of and problematize, but for the most part, uh, the issue is not being meaningfully dealt with. And this results in left-wing organizations that do not have the ability to speak to a broad working class movement that would include both the professionals and the traditional workers, which is the objective of any left-wing organization, I would think. Right. And this is, you know, and the problem is it's very universal. It's left anarchist as well. Um, the, there's this conversation happens quite often in anarchist circles uh, um, who tend to not be academics. So uh, but still wind up from the literature they read, adopting the same terminology and alienating uh, whoever they want to organize with in the same way. There's also the way that this plays in the policy, which you touch on later, and uh, and I guess in campaigning and all anywhere language is functioning really. And so, yeah. I guess how much how much weight do you put on that alone in your uh, in your analysis of what's going on uh, with the crisis of legitimacy? Is this um, reducible to a crisis in our language or is uh i know you balance it with the economic factors as well but I, I think the economic factors are more fundamental in that the economic factors make it very difficult even if you have an organization with the appropriate kind of strategy employing the appropriate kind of tactics the economic factors create a very difficult environment for organizations that do have good strategy on top of the fact that the economic factors make it difficult we also have huge problems with the strategy and tactics that are being used. And this is part of what makes the situation so difficult. In brief, the reason that the economic situation is hard is that since World War II, there's been a gradual increase in capital mobility. It's become easier and easier for wealthy oligarchs to move their money from place to place. As that happens, they have leverage because their money is mobile. Particular states, communities, places, can't move around. They are places. They are fixed in place. So they end up competing with each other for this money that can move all over the place. And in an effort to attract this money, they have to make regulations, tax policies, and so on, which cater to the interests of these oligarchs with their mobile cash, with their mobile assets. And this uh, is an incentive environment, which leads to a race to the bottom, and it makes it very difficult 
for state actors to do anything other than participate in this, since in the near term, if they refuse to participate, it puts them at a competitive disadvantage, leads to negative economic short-term effects, which can lead to electoral defeat. This is a problem. That, sorry. Because either, yeah, just to, to finish, either you need a very, very large state territory to all at once decide to change its attitude to this, a state territory that's large enough that it has leverage through its size. Or you need multiple different states working together, which means multiple different states who have governments that are all at the same time interested in doing something different. This is the multilateral versus unilateral problem I talk about a lot in the book. So all of that makes it difficult. Then on top of that, when we're talking about just how do you get a movement in power in the United States that's interested in re revising this relationship in a meaningful way, that requires smart strategy and tactics that on the left, we just don't have at all. Yeah, and uh, clearly this is uh, a big problem. Um, Let's talk a little bit more about language first, and then we'll get more into the economics then. So when it comes to the terms democracy, the term liberty, the term equality, uh, you outline a really important critique of the vagueness of these terms. Um, and also the uh, when it's not vague, how different definitions are interacting with each other. and. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I don't have any disagreements with the, 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 uh, critique you have of equality as a term. I feel like that is probably one of the most, uh, worthless words that we could use today. But, um, I, I want to get into the details of what you say about liberty because, uh, you talk about Isaiah Berlin. You mention how Berlin's like two forms of liberty have basically permeated the literature on political theory and uh, basically misguided a lot of people into assuming that you either fall into one of two kinds of supporters of liberty. Um, and I, I want to hear about how you problematize that because there it doesn't it goes beyond even, you know, the little four sections political compass thing. Uh, I think you actually do a very good job of explaining how actual political ideologies use that word specifically in a different way. So, yeah. Yeah. So. When the state is trying to legitimate various things that it does, it needs to explain what it's doing to you in such a way that you'll view what it's doing as acceptable. And the state will often do this by invoking some abstract value that you're meant to care about. And the state will go, well, I did this to protect your blank. And in liberal states, that word is usually liberty, equality, representation. I am doing this to advance liberty. I'm doing this to advance equality. I'm doing this because it represents somebody. There are other terms that you can use too. Other societies might say, I, I'm doing this to protect order, or I'm doing this to protect prosperity, or I'm doing this to protect peace. Uh, and sometimes we use these terms too, but they don't have a central uh, role in liberal states. Uh, sometimes there are you know, all, all these old-fashioned terms that you know, we don't really use 
very much at all, but you might hear about if you go into the history of thought, like I'm doing this because I have the auctoritas or I'm doing this here in the interests of isonomia or you know, various different Greek and Roman you know, concepts. Yeah. Usually if you have auctoritas, you don't have to say that you do. If you say that you have it, you probably don't. <laughs> but uh, it's a kind of Roman charisma. Okay. So in the case of, of something like liberty, it matters a lot how you understand that term, because if the state's going to invoke it to justify what it does or explain what it does, then the way that that term is understood really matters. Now, to really get maximum use out of these terms for the purposes of legitimating states, you need them to be able to be used in many different situations to justify many conflicting types of activity so that no matter what you're doing, you can go, well, I did this to defend your freedom and people will accept it. At the same time, if it's overly obvious that you are using the term in a completely disingenuous and dishonest way, then people are going to be very upset with you. They're going to catch that out. It's going to be obvious. So you need to do some games. You need to play around with the term a little bit so that it appears that there is some legitimate disagreement about the term, right? And if there's some legitimate disagreement about the term, then you can have a contest within democracy over how the term's understood. So one political party will understand the term one way and the other will understand it the other way. So when the state is acting uh, on the other understanding, that's just because you didn't win the election and you need to try harder, right? Yeah. Uh, the fact of the two-party system suggests a binary way of understanding the terms so that you can map it onto the two parties. And the general way in which uh, we have done this with liberty is to frame liberty as either positive or negative. So positive liberty is about freedom to do things and negative liberty is, is freedom from coercion. And that comes back to Isaiah Berlin. Isaiah Berlin was a cold warrior who was very much in bed with the Department of Defense and made interventions on, the, uh, on liberty specifically to shape the way in which that term was understood for undergraduate students. His intervention is not nearly as, as innovative as, as people may think. It's derived in large part from Benjamin Constant's iteration, which is several hundred years older. But the Constant yeah, the iteration French. is a lot more fun. Uh, it's more interesting insofar as Constant understands ancient liberty as being able to participate in politics and modern liberty as being protected from politics in a private sphere. I think that is closer to capturing something. Uh, but even Constant is understanding this in a, in a binary way and going, this is the old way of doing it, which no longer fits us. And this is the new way. And we ought to uh, prioritize the new way because it fits our situation better. Yes, we still need to participate a little bit in politics, but not as much as those Greeks and Romans did. You know, that, that can be demoted in our understanding of the term to a you know, subsidiary position. You know, that's Benjamin Constant. Now, if you are just interested in exploring all the different ways the concept of liberty or freedom has been understood, and sometimes they're understood interchangeably and sometimes they're understood as different terms, depending on who you ask, right? Mm -hmm. If you go into the history of thought and look at every different way those terms have been used, it is not going to be plausible that you're going to be able to frame those as either positive or negative or either ancient or modern. There's way more than two types. So in the book, I go through a couple of, you know, Historians of thought who have written really you know, well-lauded work within the field about the different ways liberty and freedom have been understood across time. So uh, we look at Quentin Skinner, we look at Raymond Goyce, uh, and there's an enormous number of ways of understanding these terms far beyond 
what is usually laid out. Now, academics who study this stuff, we all know this. If you study liberty, you're, you, of course, will have read Skinner and you'll have read Goyes. These guys, they published their work many years ago at this point. All of that work is there. So why would you be teaching Isaiah Berlin? Well, you'd be mm-hmm. teaching Isaiah Berlin either because you think that the, the propagandistic function of Berlin's schema is useful, or you're teaching Isaiah Berlin because you think your students aren't capable of understanding a wider variety of concepts, uh, or you're doing one and rationalizing it by doing the other. There are lots of different reasons why, but functionally, regardless of the motivations of the particular academic who's teaching Berlin, if you take a bunch of undergraduates who want to know what liberty is, you start with Berlin, you're starting with a propagandistic binary frame that excludes a lot of complexity. So you give students the ersatz uh, illusion of a meaningful debate by giving them more than one without really showing them all the different things you can do and you can play with. So very briefly, Quentin Skinner argues there's clearly a, a third phylum, which is a freedom as uh, non-domination or non-dependence. So if uh, you depend on someone, even if they're not interfering in your life, the fact that you depend on them makes you worry about how they might feel about the things you do. So, for instance, in a lot of anarchist critiques of the family, the argument is made that even if your spouse doesn't interfere in your life and do all this coercive stuff to you, the fact that you rely on your spouse for, say, a house or living standard, right, uh, that in and of itself produces a dependence that can be dangerous to you and make you overly careful in how you treat your spouse. Even if your spouse never behaves badly toward you, the fact that you you have to be a little bit concerned that your spouse could decide to leave you or decide to cheat or decide to go do something else, it puts you in a vulnerable situation. So a lot of anarchists will make the argument that you should instead have a communal lifestyle where you have lots of different people that you depend on so that if one of them tries to hurt you, you have other people to fall back on. If one of them doesn't yeah. come through for you, you're not over-relying on one particular person. Right. So it's very Similar kind of thing with employers. Oh, that's very common in child child raising ideas too. But yeah, yeah. Similar kind of deal with employers, where if you have you know, a singular boss, the singular boss can you depend on that boss? That boss, even if he's you know, or or she or they is a reasonably nice person, uh, that doesn't mean that you can just do whatever you want. Uh, and this can also be structural. There can be structural domination in the sense that you might not depend on a boss, but you might depend on, say, the market system for a wage. And the fact that you depend on the market system may qualify your behavior. You don't want to do things or say things that might make you unemployable. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. these are things that aren't really covered by something like a no interference view. Uh, there's also uh, all sorts of issues with, say, uh, Berlin's characterization of positive liberty as necessarily about Uh, realizing a specific essence. So Berlin understands positive liberty as the freedom to become something in particular. And -hmm. the something in particular for Berlin is something the state assigns. But it doesn't have to be the case that the state assigns the thing that you become. It might just be that the state is giving you the capabilities necessary to, say, in an existentialist sense, choose your own ends or be uh, authentic. Uh, And Goyce and, and Hollis do a wonderful job of laying out all these different ways in which something could be apparently positive liberty, but not involve the assigning of a particular essence by a central government onto the individual. And the fact that uh, that uh, 
he puts Berlin puts these two things together and treats them as if they're the same and as if they always lead into each other. The function of that is to get you to oppose all of these other forms of liberty or to view all of these other forms of liberty as dangerous in the extreme and to therefore retreat to non-interference as a safe space. Because in non-interference, there's no possibility of the state picking out what it is that you're meant to become. And a lot of libertarian and anarchist-minded people are taken in by that and then end up supporting a vision of liberty, which significantly restricts what they can do in practice. Yeah, it's incredible. There's a book that just came out by uh, Zoe Baker, who's a popular YouTube uh, British anarchist academic. And they use the uh, the Berlin distinction like to, to organize the whole um, explanation of what anarchists are for. And it's just this, obviously, as an existentialist, this drives me insane because uh, I'm mostly a Sartrean, um, very anti-essentialist. And to, to if, if it's all, I mean, one of my major projects is to try to get this into anarchist heads that we need to do a better job of talking about liberty and freedom, especially around this kind of essentialist notion that you you're going to derive if you use uh, isaiah berlin's um categorization of things so uh yeah i thought that well i don't know how to pronounce that name guess and goyce is the way goyce Goyce is how he pronounces it goyce it looks like guess and anyone who hasn't heard the name can't be faulted for pronouncing it guess guess is how it appears but he pronounces it goyce uh, I, I'm, that's the next thing I'm going to read is the source you cited for that. It's, uh, the, you provide the breakdown in the book and yeah, it's, I think incredibly useful. I might rely on that as well. Um, so while we're on the topic of, uh, um, liberty and, uh, you know, let's talk a little bit about the way representation interacts with that as well, which is, of course, you know, whether you're an anarchist or not, a really important topic. Uh, so, yeah, there's yeah, I, you also this is another great area where you go in and break it down in the book. So, yeah. So representation is a little tricky because to represent someone, you act as if they're present when they're absent. So whereas liberty is a concept that is often assumed to have a radical character to it, representation appears to be an implicitly conservative concept insofar as it involves pretending somebody is part of a decision when they're not. So the ability to use representation for a radical purpose is always questionable right from the start. And this is in part why representation is such a useful concept for liberal states, they love it because it inherently operates from the premise that some people can't be fully participatory or fully involved. So that way, in and of itself, it subordinates certain ancient conceptions of liberty for for constant that are to do with political participation or direct involvement in government. Of course, the way representation works is also uh, subject to a lot of disagreement. So there are some people who will interpret representation more in terms of whether the representative is doing what the represented want or acting in the interest of the represented. In uh, Hannah Pitkin's work, she calls, she refers to this as representation as acting for when you act for someone. 
And the old, you know, delegate trustee distinction, which gets taught to undergraduates all the time. You know, this is should the representative do what the representative thinks is good for the represented or should the representative just do whatever the represented want, regardless of whether the representative agrees? The delegate does whatever the represented want and the trustee does what the trustee thinks is best. And oftentimes that's the, the basic way it gets presented. But as you have a less capacity to act for or to act in general, as representatives become less able to act because they're in a situation where these economic incentives driven by capital mobility are overdetermining their behavior, as that intensifies, the representatives will focus on ways to create a feeling of representation without having to act for the represented at all. So instead of, of even acting as a trustee, the representative begins attempting to stand for rather than act for the represented. And there are two different types of standing for that I pay attention to in the book, especially closely. One is descriptive representations where the representative appears to be one of you in some way, appears to be from your group or to share some identity characteristic with you. And because the representative is in some sense meaningfully like you, you feel like you're there because you're looking at someone who strikes you as an extension of you, not just in terms of how they look, in terms of how they behave, in terms of how they speak. Somebody can mimic all of that without doing anything for you. And that increasingly is the function of descriptive representation to allow you to feel present, even though the person who is pretending to be one of you doesn't do anything for you at all, except look like you or sound like you. The other is symbolic representation. With symbolic representation, the representative doesn't try to look like one of you, but tries to stand for some abstraction that you're meant to identify with, right? So if the representative is the abstract embodiment of the American people or American values or an American way of life. That this abstraction, if you identify with it and you accept that this person is the embodiment of it or the avatar for it, that will make you feel represented through this mediating concept, right? In both of those cases, the person doesn't have to do anything material or economic for you at all to make you feel represented. They just have to symbolically and culturally gesture. And what I suggest in the book, although this is not absolutely the case, is that in general, progressives like descriptive representation and conservatives like symbolic representation. But insofar as those are both types of standing for representation rather than acting for, they are both meaningfully the same kind of deviation from representative government as it might have been plausibly pitched to people in the years immediately following, say, World War II. So anarchists tend to, on this issue, they tend to uh, favor two responses to the problems of representation. One, they'll go into, uh, they'll favor direct democracy, which doesn't get a lot of attention in your book, but I do want to hear your opinion on it. And, or two, what you call in your book juridical representation with a mandated delegate that's simply sent to a Congress to carry out the mandate that they're given. Right. Um, so, uh, and after this, I, the next place I want to go is to talk about how this all comes into the culture war. Um, but yeah, I, I really want to hear what your views are on direct democracy because it's not non-existent. I mean, at local levels in the United States or at federal, more federal levels in like 
I guess, uh, more of the Nordic countries, you have some of that. So, yeah, what do you what do you think about that? Yeah, so this will be an opportunity to come back to that idea of McGovernization. I think the danger with direct democracy is that direct democracy purports to get you closer to having the ordinary working person involved. But in point of fact, in most deliberative spaces, there is still going to be an advantage to the professional class person. And the professional class person, the person who's good at talking, who's been trained to talk and to use terms effectively, the orator, the debater, the rhetorician, will have an advantage over the person who hasn't acquired those skills. And this is the complaint that gets made a lot, for instance, in ancient Athens, that you have a set of demagogues, a set of trained orators who come from reasonably wealthy families who can go to rhetoric school, who tend to run the show all the time because they're very good at running rhetorical circles around everybody else. And so even though they don't have more formal rights and they're not representatives as such, they end up exercising way more power in the direct democracy than everybody else does. And so one of the things I would emphasize is just because you've changed the procedural schema in a way that formally suggests that there ought to be equality does not mean that will actually obtain. As long as you, in point of fact, have a society that has these different classes that have very different levels of political capability, that is going to be reflected by the kind of political system that you have, even if you go out of your way to structure the system to try to get around that. So people who think you could just go to direct democracy from here and that that would give you democracy without contradiction, I think those people are not being realistic. And they're thinking that you can have a purely political solution to something which is necessarily in part an economic problem tied to capitalism and particularly to a kind of capitalism where you have extremely high capital mobility. Yeah, and the perfect example, right, of that is think tanks and boiler boilerplate policy where we see, you know, 18 states or whatever adopt some boilerplate crap. And, you know, that would effectively mean even if you were directly democratic, you're still ultimately getting the policy from, you know, uh, American, whatever, liberal, liberal, whatever the foreign, you know, think tank is. And to the credit of the radical Democrats, they, they care about this problem. So they will try to, for instance, suppose maybe we can educate the citizens before they participate in the deliberative space so that they'll be able to participate in it on equal terms. The trouble is who decides on what counts as education? A professional does. So that might increase the attachment of the ordinary person to the deliberative space. It might make them more likely to believe that they really are part of it, but it wouldn't actually make it the case that they're part of it on equal terms. Yeah, I've I've heard you talk a lot about education on some of the other interviews and stuff you've done. Um, I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole just because my background is like I have a GED. <laughs> so my experience in the world of education is basically nothing. Uh, so I don't really have a lot to say about it. But um, uh, as far as like representation goes, um it definitely also ties into this culture war phenomenon that literally everybody from your grandpa to your barber is going to talk to you about. And um, yeah, let's, let's talk about how those two things go together. Yeah. So as it becomes harder and harder for the state to take meaningful economic action, the state will focus more on the things that it can do that feels meaningful. And because cultural stuff doesn't cost oligarchs any money, there will be a tendency to emphasize cultural gestures 
that will not fundamentally change the economic situation. And an attempt will be made to frame these cultural phenomena as actually the cause of everything that's a problem. Because since you aren't going to change the economic system, if you're an American representative that's been elected, you're not going to change it. Uh, you will instead try to argue that, well, it isn't actually an economic problem in the first place, and we can tackle this problem purely through some kind of cultural struggle. And that's something the right explicitly says. The right explicitly frames all of this as a cultural problem. So cultural interventions are the solution. And therefore, when they are just culturally blathering, they are fixing the problem as far as they're concerned. Right? The left, insofar as the left is still committed to some kind of economic understanding, influenced by Marxism or anarchism, can't make that move uh, straightforwardly. But yet, in point of fact, what we tend to find is that once people who are ostensibly left-wing are elected to Congress, uh, they find that there isn't a whole lot they can do. They pivot toward cultural issues to try to stay relevant, keep their base voters engaged. And media organizations also do this because we have to bear in mind that all of our news about politics comes from media companies, including independent media companies that are in a market that are competing with each other and need to make money. So if you're in a period where nobody's really accomplishing anything to do with the economy and you just keep putting out stories about Medicare for all and healthcare, uh, you're not going to get that many clicks because nothing's going on with all of that. But if you talk about what happened to some school teacher in some district in the middle of Kansas or something, uh, you know, some story that has a narrative that has personalities in it, uh, you know, look at this horrible thing that happened to this person, you know, just because they said this or they gestured in this way or what have you uh, from any direction, that's going to get a lot more clicks. And so the material incentive for magazines, for websites, for podcasters who get their money from Patreon is to continually go more and more in this culture war direction because that's what get, gets clicks, it gets subscribers. And the same is true for the elected officials. So if you're trying to get meaningful economic change, you need some kind of way of dealing with that structural incentive strategically. And that is something we've had a very difficult time on the left coming up with. The right, it just blatantly acquiesces to this and, and treats it broadly as, as perfectly normal and acceptable, with a few exceptions. There are some people on the right these days who are increasingly concerned about the economy. Uh, but those people are very marginal within the broader right as it stands today. Um, yeah, I think, you know, you later in the book, you talk about the four Fs um, that people will... Uh, uh, you know, resort to if they exit from mainstream political activity, uh, faith, family, fandoms, and futurism. And especially those last two, fandoms and futurism, I think have a lot of purchase on the left right now when it comes to uh, the, the culture war topic that we were, we're talking about. And uh, I want to spend a little time on this because I think it's pretty important to critique um uh my like approach to it tends to just be straight from like the situationists or something but uh you have a different way of doing it and so i want you to talk about you know fandoms and futurism a little bit and get some of that out to the audience as well yeah so as the politicians struggle to do anything meaningful about the economy, and they turn to these forms of standing for representation and these cultural pastures. People who go to college, who get exposed to a lot of this cultural terminology, often get very excited by all of that. 
And so we'll see professionals, uh, particularly rep professionals, go all in on that and get really involved in the culture work. The person who doesn't go to college is not going to be as taken in by all of this because they didn't learn the terms. They haven't been in the spaces, so it's hard for them to play the game. And they keep getting picked on and bullied when they get a word wrong or they mess up. So they're more likely to respond to all of this by going, well, none of you are doing anything for me. And anytime I try to participate, I just get made fun of and picked on. So I'm going to just quit and get out of all this. So this is the retreat into the four Fs, the four enclaves of faith, family, fandoms, and futurism. Now, you could try to frame this as, you know, faith and family are the conservative ones and fandoms and futurism are the progressive ones. I don't straightforwardly do that, especially because I think if you understand all of these concepts broadly enough, you'll see that there are certainly progressive instantiations of family, especially if we think about family as just household in a generalized sense. And there are certainly progressive uh, iterations of faith. If we look at spiritual, but not religious, if we look at Marianne Williamson, if we look at some of the uh, new kinds of of theology that have popped out of continental European philosophers in recent years. At the same time, if we go to the fandoms and, and futurism, we can certainly find kind of seemingly right-wing figures in the futurism space, like say Elon Musk. Uh, and we can certainly find right-wingers who are committed to defending some kind of traditional Star Wars, right? You know, yeah. Well, the, whole, 80s the, Star whole, Wars. the whole Silicon Valley ideology, of course, is, is this massively right-wing ideology. Um, yeah. yeah. So I but, think there's both kinds of things are in, in both spaces. What I would say is that, uh, the difficulty with retreating into all of these spaces is that all of these spaces become places where political strategists are going to want to go. Because if you have a large number of fringe voters or disaffected voters in these spaces and you're trying to get votes for your candidate, as the number of people who are willing to switch parties, the swing voters, decreases and the number of people who quit out of frustration increases, the place to go get votes is the fringe voter. And so the place to go get votes is in the enclave. It's not in the other party's camp. So that means that, for instance, a lot of people who want to get into politics or want to get into media, but don't find a good fit there, will become religious preachers. They will try to go into churches. They'll try to mobilize churches for political purposes. They will often get some distance doing that. Eventually, a lot of their non-college educated uh, parishioners will get frustrated with the whole thing because it won't accomplish very much for them. And that leads to a dropping out. One of the interesting statistics is that while people who don't go to college are more spiritual, they have a much higher incidence of belief in, say, God, church attendance rates are higher for people who go to college because people who go to church like the professional preacher, whereas people who don't go to college are more likely to feel disaffected by all that. That makes sense. Yeah. In the case the family, we get this huge antagonism over whether it's possible to do different kinds of households, whether it's economically possible. And we get all these arguments about whether there's adequate support for different models of household or whether people are being pushed into a type of household they don't want to be in. Um, and there are, of course, on both sides of the cultural divide, different sorts of household configurations that different people don't like. In the case of fandoms, the Cultural division gets replicated within fandoms as some parts of fandoms become attached to a, a notion of a unified symbolic fandom. What does Star Wars mean to you? And others interpret fandom in a more descriptive way and want to see characters that look like them, sound like them, seem to be similar to them, actors and actresses that look like them, sound like them. 
right? So that gets replicated in fandoms. And in the case of, of futurism, futurism, I think, is particularly fascinating because futurism, more than any of these others, involves an abdication to the economy. So in all of these other spaces, you can imagine some other way, economic way of life, some other set of values that you might base life around apart from just trying to make money and trying to climb up the greasy pole. But futurism leans into all of that and says that the economy will eventually deliver some kind of utopian future if you follow the right particular person. And then some of these particular people become political markers. And increasingly, it's difficult for these tech oligarchs to avoid being politicized. And now... I think we're starting to see some of them accept that they can't avoid it and just adopt political postures rather than try to stay above the fray. I think up to 2016, there was a a real meaningful attempt to stay above the fray. And then after 2016, when the government began to pay attention to social media and its potential impact on electoral politics, it became harder and harder for these guys to position themselves as totally neutral actors. And after trying for a while to be totally neutral actors, they just adopted uh, particular positions. Yeah. And then you also mentioned like accelerationist Marxists in that, in this portion. And, uh, I think that's a really good, the, it's, you apply that critique to them as well, which I think is pretty relevant. The yes, way that someone who thinks that the economy will eventually deliver socialism isn't that different in the near term from someone who thinks the economy will eventually deliver, uh, you know, a tech utopia or the singularity or what have you. And indeed, a lot yeah. of the, there's a lot of intermixing in that particular space in, in the Bay Area between people on the left and people uh, in the in the tech center. They have a lot of common ground on that set of stuff. Oh, for sure. Um, as far as the fandom goes, I don't. Th- I think there might be a little generational difference between me and you on uh, this thing that I'm going to say. But you know, all through my adolescence, the, the most important thing seemed to be the kind of music that you uh, that you listen to which is essentially a form of fandom and uh, you know, the birth of anarchism or the rebirth, I should say in this country, a lot of it comes out of the punk movement. Uh, And so this critique of fandom is uh, central to, to basically my entire youth and adult life even. And, um, and, like I said, the situationist international is, you know, this whole idea of there being a spectacle, which uh, would probably be like a 202 class after reading this book or something. But um, yeah, incredibly important. So uh, that's how I relate to it there. Um, you mentioned some stuff about labor in your book. and. Uh, you know, you, I, you know, I think I want to talk a little bit about that with you because I think in the American to- context, yes, what you have to say about it is absolutely true. Uh, I basically don't even think labor, uh, anarchist organizing makes any sense here. Um, how, however, as an internationalist, that's, that doesn't mean ethically or strategically. I don't think it's important in like the pigs countries or other places that still have stronger labor movements that could be radicalized. Um, but yeah, would it give me your spiel on the, uh, the labor movement and how that has become less relevant? 
Yeah. So I think some people overreact to the spiel I'm about to give about the labor movement and say this means that there's no point in trying to organize workplaces. And that's certainly not what I am about to say. But I think that there's also a chunk of people who think that organizing the workplace will by itself solve all your problems. And my emphasis is that it won't do that. So the first thing to bear in mind is that as much as labor organizing in lots of different places played a very substantial role in the concessions that were extracted in the late 19th and 20th centuries, they didn't do this by themselves. It had to be the case that there were these big world wars that put states in difficult situations where they really relied on their workers to make all the munitions and fight in the army, where the state would be in danger if it couldn't do those things. In these situations, also international trade broke down, capital mobility broke down. So rich people didn't have that leverage of being able to move their money all over the place. And it was in that structural context that strong labor movements were able to extract sizable concessions. The size of the concession varied in different places depending on how acute the threats were to oligarchs. In the United States, where there was never really any chance of the country being directly invaded and taken over, the leverage was not as great as it would be in states where it was a existential struggle, life and death kind of struggle. All of that has to be borne in mind. The Bolsheviks don't even you know, stage the you know, revolution without World War I to create that crisis, uh, which they can then take advantage of. So as much as you might organize, even if you organize as effectively as Vladimir Lenin, you know, you're not going to get there just through organization. You need some kind of, of luck Uh, And that luck is bad luck in the sense that it is some kind of cataclysmic event that nobody should want and nobody uh, could possibly advocate for in a vacuum. Right. So that is a fundamental reality that we do have to talk about. The degree to which everything we have depends on these wars that were fought. Uh, In a sense, people did die for everybody's freedom. And how is this different than how is this different than accelerationism? Because I think people get confused about this. Right. So accelerationists think that if you just allow the economy to develop over time, gradually the economy will produce a higher and higher levels of production. Eventually, the economy will reach a point where it no longer makes sense for anybody to work. All the jobs will be automated. Having a human being work would be counterproductive. And at that point, uh, there will be very, very large structural unemployment. The structurally unemployed will be in position to demand uh, that They receive some part of the dividends from the machines, from the robots, and that they will then be able to to get that. Of course, if there is big structural unemployment, then they won't have very much leverage because they won't be able to strike. So how will they get those concessions? Well, maybe they'll be in the army. Maybe they'll have sympathizers in the army. Uh, But of course, if you make AI droids and you... uh, take away the ordinary soldier's job in the army, then you're not going to have anybody in the army who's sympathetic to you. Uh, So I think that when we start getting into these very far futuristic worlds where there's enormous automation, there's this question of, well, how would you still do a meaningful or effective politics of radical change or redistribution in a context where you can't strike because nobody works and the soldiers and the police are droids and so can't refuse to shoot you? Uh, It becomes very difficult in those far-flung future scenarios to imagine how you would actually do anything. Yeah. Not to mention that, you know, militaries tend to be some of the most nationalistic entities around. But in every case where a revolution has worked at some point, the soldier, despite all of that, 
says, I'm not going to shoot these people. In fact, I'm going to help them. That is the the miracle of every revolution is that at some point somebody tells a soldier, go shoot those strikers, go shoot those demonstrators. And the soldier says, no, I won't do that. They're like me. That's the thing that ultimately allows any kind of major change to occur. At some point, that soldier refuses to shoot those people. And once he does that, he's committed treason. He's mutinous. And therefore, Mm -hmm. his only choice is to arrest or throw out the sitting government. So much depends on that figure. That figure is underappreciated. Yeah, there's actually some, uh, I think there's some interesting ideas about the role of conscription uh, in uh, making making some of these things possible as well. Yes. Um, which, uh, I don't know what my opinion is on it, which is weird, because you would think anarchists would be against conscription. However, there is this uh, this capacity for conscription to enable direct actions. Yes, politically, conscription is really important. But the way that the state gets you to support getting rid of it is to suggest that it's an infringement upon people's liberty for them to be conscripted, which of course it is. But if you don't have that infringement, then you won't have people who potentially disagree with the state who are armed. And in the United States today, we have an enormous disparity in who's armed. And the people who are armed are not the people who are critical of the state from a left-wing standpoint. And that fact is enormously consequential and something that we nobody wants to talk about or deal with. And part of the constant emphasis on gun control is about getting people not to think about this and to not want to be the one who has the gun. But in that situation, the one with the gun decides whether the revolution comes off or doesn't. Yeah, I, if we had more time to talk about this, I, I'm very interested in the history of the division between civil society and military society. And I, there's just so much to talk about there because technically what you see in anarchist uh, ideas is that that division isn't really there. And um, uh, there's all sorts of (laughs) surrounding questions that come up if you start talking about that and nobody talks about it. Uh, Another thing that people don't seem to talk about and is, um, although briefly during Occupy era, this was on the table, was this idea of a rent strike or a mortgage strike. And this is where I actually think there is a lot of potential, um, especially in such a uh, real estate heavy economy that we live in. Um, there's a famous example of a rent strike leading to an insurrection that happened in Glasgow in 1915. Uh, there's obviously every revolution has had some form of this in the modern period. And I'm, you know, there's weaknesses, but I have trouble seeing them. And I'm wondering if you could, you know, shed some light. Well, I would say one of the things that has made that a bit more difficult in recent years is the degree to which ownership of property consolidated after COVID. So a lot of small Uh, landowners could not survive the eviction moratorium and therefore had to sell off property to major landowners. And those large landowners have more ability to survive periods where they don't get rent uh, and can be more patient in the face of things like rent strikes. So I think that's something that has to some degree weakened that. Of course, that doesn't mean that you don't use it as a tactic. And to come back to the point about unions, the unions were at their strongest point in terms of membership and density right at the moment when they critically failed in the 70s. 
And the reason that they critically failed in the 70s is that by that point, there was capital mobility again. The structural conditions behind them were different. So even though the unions were very big uh, in many different countries, not just in the States, their leverage was much lower, even though their size was greater because of that change to the background conditions. So these material background conditions are the things that we ultimately must come face to face with, because as much as we may try to strategize around them, if we don't work with them, if we don't uh, think about them, they are going to overwhelm our best efforts. Okay, so let's talk, let's, let's finally talk about it. Let's talk about money and let's talk about the way that money is and isn't used on the left. I've been harping on this issue a lot myself lately. I've spent 20 years do, doing various activist things with anarchists, non-anarchists. Money always is um, a problem. And people don't want to admit that if you're going to build something of a lasting consequence, you have to accumulate wealth in one way or another. A pretty good way to do that is by using money and dues in your organizations. But we don't, you know, the DSA does this kind of. But I mean, it's something that a lot of people are really uncomfortable with. And, uh, you know, I think we got to start thinking about how to change that so fundamentally because what it doesn't seem possible to do anything if you don't do that. And like even the old IWW, they had a monetary strategy. They had dues. They, these were like coal miners and people who were like living on the sites of the mines, making just enough to live, still able to pay dues, still able to create strike funds and all this other stuff some reason that has disappeared. So what's your take? Yeah. So I think part of the trouble is that people are scared that if they introduce something like dues, nobody will want to pay them and the membership will collapse. Now, the reason that people don't want to pay dues is that they don't think these organizations are really getting material results for them. If these organizations were actually helping you to negotiate for yourself with your landlord or with your boss, then you would be expecting that over time, you'd get a bigger benefit from the organization than your dues. And the dues would be a small price to pay for the larger material benefit that you'd be getting. But because a lot of these organizations are not materially benefiting their members, they can't be assured that if they introduce dues, the members will still want to contribute. The members are there for a sense of community. They're there for the feeling that they might get if they went to a church. They're not there because they think that being in this organization will make their family better off. And that means that you have a major, major problem. Any organization that's going to be able to really get big and strong and compete in any meaningful way with these very rich people who have loads of resources with which to survive strikes is going to need some kind of strike fund, some kind of fund to support the members during a period when the members are using what leverage they have. If you can't build up a strike fund, then your strike is going to be short and they're going to know it's going to be short before you start it. And so they're not going to be intimidated by the threat of it, which means you're going to have to follow through on the threat more often. And then when you follow through on the threat, you're going to have fewer resources to support your people. When you then fail to get concessions, you're going to look like you can't actually do anything. So that's going to make them less interested in paying dues. So you get into a vicious circle with this. And of course, the background conditions make it harder to win in the first place. And so make it harder to even get into a position where you think an organization might be worth paying dues to. But you have to at least get to that point. You have to deliver on enough for people 
that they're willing to pay dues or you're never going to be able to really compete with all of this stuff. You know what? what's so funny about this, though, is the Bernie Sanders campaign and the capacity that one campaign had to raise millions of dollars from small donations. It indicates, obviously, the money is there. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, the, the, there's a faith in the, in the president and in the powers of the president that ordinary people have that is uh, not really based in reality, but is based on the the title and its history and associations with particular presidents like FDR uh, that that uh, still are in people's minds. This idea that if the president is sufficiently skilled, he can figure everything out on his own. That, for one, it's not true. The presidents that we regard that way, we regard that way in part because in terms of the background conditions, they were were operating in favorable contexts where they were able to get stuff done. Uh, But uh, the, the other issue is that when you rely on the charisma of the office of the presidency, that is necessarily not something that trickles down very effectively. So when down-ballot candidates try to run off the basis that Bernie endorses them, they don't come up with nearly as much money as Bernie himself was able to come up with. Uh, and so this is, this is the, the difficulty. Now, I think that another problem is that in terms of where people were running Bernie-crack candidates, they were running them in these heavily gerrymandered districts in blue cities that don't look like the rest of the population, don't talk like the rest of the population, have a percentage of people who have been to college that is too high, have a percentage of people who voted for Hillary Clinton that's too high, have an activist primary voter base that is more interested in the cultural issues than they are in improving conditions. So the effect of all of this is that the Berniecrat campaigns for Congress tend not to emphasize the same issues in the same ways that Sanders himself emphasizes them. And then when Fox starts covering those people and going, look at what goes on, you know, oh, you like Bernie, but look at what the down ballot Bernie Kratz are saying and doing. The effect of that is to make it much harder for the movement to scale up. And so when someone tries to run a Bernie Kratz campaign in a more ordinary district, there is suspicion from the local population that this person is interested in doing the kinds of things that the people in the squad, for instance, uh, talk yeah. about doing. So where do you think the money, you know, money is, is uh, a better strategy? What do you think a better way to do this is? I mean, I, I talked to Doug Lane about this when I was on his show. And I kind of feel like people in my role or his role or whatever we are, that one of the things we should be doing is some kind of crowdfunding for specific issues. I suggested the Starbucks organizing or whatever, but, you know, it builds a reputation at you know, indicates that there's actions behind, you know, your stances, there's real material consequences, things like that. But do you have any ideas on that? Yeah, it really starts with being able to get wins, get something that looks like a meaningful, tangible win, not something you sell as a win after the fact when it really isn't something purely cultural or or standing for that you can frame as a win, but something that materially improves living standards. So when people give you money, they feel like they're making an investment. We need action, which is based on the idea that the people funding it are the beneficiaries of the action. So not just Mm -hmm. some kind of charitable giving where you're giving money and then someone else benefits. That's a liberal model for uh, for donating. What ideally we want is the people who are giving the money are the beneficiaries. Now, sometimes you'll have a situation where some billionaire oligarch wants to support 
left-wing activity and is willing to throw money at you. And occasionally those people are sincere and not just trying to take over your organization from outside. But you got to be careful about those people for those reasons, right? Ultimately, the most sustainable model is a model where the people giving the money are the beneficiaries. So then that means drilling down into what are the situations where the people who give you the money can actually benefit? And I think land use in local areas is the area where you have the most capacity to get things done because land is fixed in space. Land can't move. So when you regulate land, you zone land, you develop land, it is not as if the land can run away because you picked something the land didn't like, right? Uh, So I think that focusing on land use is the thing to do going forward in local communities. People should be organizing around land use. So would you, would like, I guess the main mechanism is like a CLT, right? A community land trust. Yes, I think the land trust idea is a great idea. I also think, you know, you can attack this from many different angles, depending on what the local regulations are and what it favors. The thing about land is that different states, different localities do have different laws that govern land use. And so depending on where you are, you have to look very closely at all of that. You also have to bear in mind that if you do stuff that is too interesting, that state governments will tend to prohibit you from doing it. They'll tend to try to step in and restrict your ability to do these things. So either you want to operate in spaces where you think the state government won't do that to you, which you should be really careful before you assume that, Uh, or you want to operate in circumstances where you think that you could get to scale fast enough to be able to parlay the struggle between your locality and the state into power at the state level. That's yeah, that's excellent advice. Um, Let's end on talking about one last thing, uh, localism. We have a very different idea of where this uh, support for localism comes from. I see it as like a craft industry phenomenon, which is emerged over, you know, since like, I guess, Starbucks started selling people on the idea of moral capital or whatever, but you blame anarchists for it. Um <laughs> in the book uh i don't know where that comes from i'm sure it exists but either way we both agree localism is not um efficient or sufficient yeah so that's not to say that you don't do things in local areas like i just said starting in local areas makes sense but you have to have this problem of capital mobility in mind. And capital mobility is necessarily global in scale. It's mobility from place to place. So if what you do is too focused on a specific place with no end game for scaling up, then you're never going to actually confront the capital mobility and there will be strict limitations on what you're able to accomplish. And when eventually you run out of road, then your political energy is going to dissipate. And to try to maintain that energy, you're going to pivot into culture war. Have you so have you done a lot of much study on like the anti-globalization movement? Because this was sort of like the catchphrase was uh, think global, act local. And. Uh, yeah, I don't know. The anti-globalization how- movement, you know, it was a lot of uh, very interesting intellectually, you know, the movement in the 90s. The difficulty is that at that time, the background conditions did not really favor doing a whole lot about this outside of, say, college-educated professionals and activists. Because in the 90s, you had the fall of the Soviet Union, you had relatively high economic growth, you had a period where there was still a very robust end-of-history energy. So 
until 2008, I don't think we really had a proper challenge to this notion that the collapse of the Soviet Union proves and establishes that there's no alternative to this system. Post-2008, there's a sizable number of people who are interested in alternatives, but struggling to find anything that they can actually do, anything they can actually believe in, anything they can actually implement, anything that doesn't conflict with other fundamental values that they have that they're not willing to transgress against. So the anti-globalization movement, it, in some ways, it came too early. It also came too late insofar as it didn't come in the 50s when they were doing GATT and they were doing the WTO and they were loosening yeah. up all the capital controls. It didn't show yeah. up then. The big rebellion it came again. too late and too early. 20 years too late and 20 years too early, at least. Yeah. Not to mention the way that the Bush, you know, uh, regime with, uh, you know, the the security state just absolutely crushed a lot of the the tactical. Yeah. Yeah. Because they didn't then, have any structural leverage to work with. It was mainly a, a set of ideas that activists and college educated people were having. Interesting ideas, but it didn't attach to anything that could actually deliver. Yeah. I, do you think we're going to see that come back? Well, I think part of the trouble right now is that globalization and globalism sound very similar. That's true. And people who don't know the difference between, say, the rights critique and the, the left critique are tending to assimilate any kind of critique of capital mobility and frame that as some kind of right-wing critique. So anyone who is concerned about capital mobility must be some kind of nationalist who wants to get into some kind of showdown with China. And and therefore, all of that has to be opposed from the get-go. The difficulty then is you end up with this multilateralist position for people Mm -hmm. who still harbor the critique. And the multilateralist position is difficult because if you have sworn off unilateralism, then even if you get into power, you don't have the credible threat of going your own way. If you don't have the credible threat of going your own way, then unless you're really lucky, and there are many other governments at the same time who also want to make these changes, you may find that you want to make changes, you can't convince anyone else to make the changes, and therefore you fail. And this has happened a lot within the European Union, where you'll have a left-winger elected who says, I want to make these changes, but I'm not willing to exit the European Union because that would be economically terrible and it would be a nationalist thing to do and it would make all the wrong people happy. So I won't do that. But then when you come into the negotiation with Germany, the Germans call your bluff immediately. They know that you have no real intention of doing all of that stuff. And then when you disappoint everybody, you lose the election and then a right-winger wins who is willing to, to go in that direction. Or right, so, a centrist wins who's willing to compel everyone to acquiesce to the German demands. And just for anyone watching that's, that doesn't know what we're talking about, Greece and the Troika, as they call it, Germany. and yeah. yeah, yeah, you can apply it to Greece. You can apply it to France. There's all sorts of different European examples of uh, politicians who have been entrapped by this question of uh, multilateralism or unilateralism, where if you say you're for unilateralism, you are crazy. Uh, and if you say you're not for unilateralism, you have no leverage. Well, uh, this was uh, really uh, great having you on the show today. Do you want to uh, tell everybody about where they could find your work, uh, any future projects you're working on? Yeah. So, of course, the cheapest place you can find the book is Springer's own shop online. In terms of all of my other stuff, I do a lot of different stuff. I do it for outlets of various political persuasions. You can find it at benjaminstudebaker.com. My about page, which I 
re- reasonably regularly update has a list of absolutely everything I've done. Other places you may find partial lists, but on my own website in the about, you'll find a complete list. Excellent. All right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and end the recording here. Thank you again. Thanks a bunch. Bye-bye.